explaining cricket to Americans Just trying to get a hold The whole damn thing all out Good morning and welcome to episode 483 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Baseball Reference Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined by Sam Miller. Hello. Hi. Anything before we begin? Emails? Uh, Koji Uohara's uh, outing on Tuesday included a run allowed and no home runs, so that oh. dream is that dream is over. Hmm. And you jinx Sean Doolittle too. Uh, that kind, you know, what kind of? He had one bad outing or something. Yep, which is notable for him. Yeah, I guess. I mean, he walked. He, I guess he. He did walk, walk a guy. Yeah. That mm-hmm. that probably more specifically. Mm-hmm. But I mean, everybody jinxed Sean Doolittle then. <laughs> right. Every yeah. every single person who has written about baseball mm-hmm. tied tied for the jinx. Yep, you share a small portion of the blame. Okay, is that it? Mm-hmm. All right, so listener emails. We got some good ones. I have them all in a Word document here. Let me pick out a couple. Uh, this one was fun. It's always always good when we can answer a cricket-related question. This one comes from Owen in Wellington, New Zealand, who says, Hi, Ben and Sam. I always think of it that way, but I have no idea why. I have been thinking about asking a question for about 350 episodes and decided now was the time My question this week is related to that oft-mentioned sport on the podcast, Cricket. Over the last few months, there has been a pretty large scandal involving some former international cricket players uh, involving match-fixing in various leagues around the league. However, strangely in most of these cases, only two out of the 11 players have been accused of any wrongdoing. I think that in Cricket, one player can often have a bigger impact than in baseball as a general rule, and I would not be comfortable betting on a game in which I had only gotten two players in the bag. What if someone else on the team had a crazy game and you lost the entirety of your Swiss bank account? Therefore, my question is, how many baseball players on a team, perhaps hypothetically equal teams assumed, or I think more interestingly, a massively favored team, I think you'd have to exclude the starting pitcher, would you need to have bought before you would say that you'd be 90% confident that your team would lose? Uh, what, uh, I mean, what, uh, so I don't want to exclude the starting pitcher, though. Mm. Okay. Okay. You don't have <laughs> that to. That seems that seems unfair. We can tamper with the parameters here. Because um, if you didn't have to exclude the starting pitcher, how often do you think a starting pitcher could, like, let's just say, for instance, Justin Masterson were on the take this year. <laughs> uh, he's done a pretty exceptional job of pitching much worse than expected, um, and his team has done. Let's. I'm, I'm checking to see. Uh, they won today, despite his best intentions. Wow, wow! They're <laughs> ten and seven. When he pitches. When he pitches. Huh. He's been so bad. I was gonna make this point that nobody suspects Justin <laughs> Masterson of taking money from gamblers, uh, <laughs> but in fact, he's been extremely ineffective. So mm-hmm. maybe harder than I thought. I mean, like today, he only pitched three innings, and they won. Um, <laughs> So, uh, 10 base runners in three innings. You can't really do that much worse than that. Uh, so what, uh, I don't know. I mean, the, uh, Nate Silver did a piece on um, on umpires, I would say, around 2000. I would say summer of 2006 is my guess, um, uh, about umpires and whether they could be crooked and, um, and affect the outcome in some meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And I I don't remember I don't remember exactly what his conclusion was, and um, I was just trying to look it up when you turned to me and made me start speaking. <laughs> um, but I think, if, as I recall, it was I think at the time that he he said that there's just not that many questionable calls, um, mm-hmm. and of course that was this was pre framing math, and so maybe now we would look at it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at the time it was like even for a home plate umpire. The problem is just that most most calls are still kind of clear that you don't you don't have that big an opportunity to sway the outcome um, of a pitch in a meaningful situation. Mm-hmm. I might be totally misremembering what Nate said, but um, uh, because of that, um, you know, it, it would be a little bit tricky even for a catcher probably 
Um, let's see, what was I? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, so this is not the same thing, but like when Manny Machado threw the bat at the third baseman, uh, mm-hmm. it was sort of striking how 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 obviously intentional it was. Uh, so it, it might also be hard. I mean, that's not how you would throw a game. You would not throw a game by flinging your bat at the third baseman. However, most uh, many many acts that you would try to do poorly would probably be kind of uncomfortable to watch, and they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't look natural enough. So it might be a challenge. I'm just rambling on a little bit here, but mm-hmm. I guess I'm getting to the point that if you had the starting pitcher, it'd be pretty easy. I still think even with Justin Masterson. Uh, exception, and if you had anybody else, it'd be kind of tricky. Uh, mm-hmm. What? So I guess here's the question: um, You're uh, you're you're betting ten dollars against my ten dollars, two evenly matched teams, mm-hmm. um, and so you're ten against my ten. Uh, you find out that uh, one player in the game is is taking money from a bookie to to throw the game. You don't know which player. You don't know if it's the best player or the worst. I don't know that it matters. Mm-hmm. I guess you would. I guess you would say the best. It's easier for Miguel Cabrera to go 0 for 4 without raising eyebrows than for um, you know uh, Jeff Mathis to go 0 for like 17 with three errors <laughs> or whatever would be the equivalent drop off in his expected performance. Yeah. Um, so I guess you'd want it to be the star if you could, um, but uh, you don't know that. All you know is that one of the one of the non-starting pitchers is is in the back. How much of a discount? would you take to still make that bet? Uh, hmm. So I don't even know if it's, can we say that it's someone in the starting lineup? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's not a bullpen it's, guy. It's not the utility infielder. It's not. It's one of the nine. Uh, yeah, it's one of the nine, although I'd be curious if it were the closer, what, whether that would be, whether you would rather have it be the closer mm-hmm. or the, the best hitter. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. If it was the closer, if it was the closer, I don't know how reliably a closer could blow a close game, but basically you're going to have you know you're going to win half your bets because the closer, you know, because the team's going to lose anyway. Um, and then you uh, of those remaining half, like something like half of those will involve the closer. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's uh if there's a 1 in 9 or 1 in 10 or whatever chance that it's the starting pitcher, then it's not. It's not the starting. It's not. Pitcher. It's not. Okay. So, hmm. So I think I'd. I'd only need a a small discount. I think if it's if it's ten dollars, and we're talking about one member of a starting lineup, I'll say. Hmm, well, on the one hand, uh, as we know from that from the sort of terrible stat that you hate when people cite, when one guy has a good game, that. Uh, the the team's record in that game tends to be very good, right? So maybe maybe if you can guarantee that one guy will have a terrible game, then maybe the opposite is true. Maybe the team would have a well. Part of the reason record. it's not exactly because the right. default in baseball is that he'll have a bad game. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the default offensive line is not very good. However, uh, the point is that even even one good event significantly like if you have if you know that one guy hit a home run for instance you that's i don't know like a like a 12 or 13 percent win probability added or something like that on average so um so just one good event can can sway something so even if you could only guarantee one extra hit for the opponent uh that'd still be you know pretty significant mm-hmm. uh so i don't know i guess i i guess i'd only need Maybe maybe I'd just say a, a dollar a guy or something. Uh-huh. Uh huh. A dollar a guy. So you would then bet it, uh, if if I would only bet eleven to ten, uh, you put up eleven and I put up ten. You would take that bet if you had one guy. I think so. And then if you had two guys, you would do twelve to ten. Yeah, I wonder. Maybe there's a a multiplic- multiplicative effect if there are. If there are multiple guys in the bag, then maybe you have, uh, maybe you have a an increased increased chance of winning because uh, or losing, as the case may be, because there are some cases where the players are both involved in a play, and maybe not. Maybe it doesn't doesn't even 
maybe it doesn't even matter. Maybe there's no, maybe it's linear that your chances go, go up the, just sort of in a line with the, the number of opposing players who are trying to lose. So, so yeah, I guess uh, about that, sure. So I'm reading Nate's piece right now, and he doesn't just look at balls and strikes. He looks at close plays at home, mm-hmm. the ejection of the pitcher, uh, and box called, and uh, as well as balls and strikes. And he concludes that, uh, quote, a corrupt home plate umpire could engineer a victory an extra 8.2% of the time for an overall winning percentage of 58.2%. The vast majority of the difference is in the way he calls balls and strikes. This assumes the umpire has some concern about anomalous calls that might trigger attention from league officials. Over time, as the level of heat on the umpire increases, he would need to be more and more careful, and his ability to manipulate the outcome of the contest would decrease. Um, if, for example, the umpire decided to call a tight strike zone when the home plate was at bat, but a normal strike zone when the visiting team is at bat, uh, the home team's winning percentage would be reduced to 54.3%. So, uh, anyway, 8% for an umpire, more or less for the, um, for Troy Tulowitzki. Hmm. More? Okay. All right. Settled. But maybe not for a left fielder or something. Mm-hmm. Troy Tulowitzki's, you know, star player at a position that gets a, a lot of defensive chances. So Yeah. Hence the choosing of Troy Tulowitzki. Uh-huh. There was a method behind that. Okay. All right. So this question comes from Sean. Let's say there's a team in the midst of the wildcard chase, and they have a team on base percentage that is the league-wide mean, currently the Orioles at 318. Let's say this hypothetical team decided as a means of scoring more runs than they were going to as blatantly or yeah, as scoring more runs than they were going to to as blatantly as possible flaunt every unwritten rule. Bat flips on infield flyouts, pimping warning track shots, tagging as hard as possible every time, and all 24 members were 100% committed to this strategy. How much of an increase in on-base percentage do you think they could achieve? Thanks to all the necessary hit-by-pitches, and do you think at any point the league would wisen up to their efforts? Well, you, one thing that's significant is that you have to assume that most uh, retribution, retaliation, hit-by-pitches come in the uh, situation that is least likely to hurt the pitching team. Mm-hmm. And so you, you might get a lot of low-leverage uh, batters on base. But that doesn't necessarily help you. I mean, the problem is with this strategy is that there's nothing that compels the opposing team to do this. uh, And particularly, it doesn't compel them to do it on your timetable. So you might very likely get hit in the cheek with a pitch uh, in spring training, uh, for instance, the next year or uh, in the eighth inning of a game that's, you know, already six to one, uh, three days down the road. Um, So... I don't know that it's a. Uh, I don't know that. Well, it's certainly not a sound strategy for winning. I don't know that it would move the needle whatsoever, though, for winning. I mean, it was whatsoever, slightly, slightly, slightly. But I, I think it would be almost impossible to get the uh, opposing team to systematically um, uh, shoot themselves in the foot out of rage. Uh, and whether it would take, how long it would take the league to wisen up to their efforts. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Like uh, when it would be, the, it would be in a Jeff Passan column, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and it would be what, like two and a half weeks, if they did this really reliably. Yeah, probably. If probably, I'd say even sooner if they were if they were taking it to this degree. So what yeah, if, I guess. But Passan only Passan only writes a couple columns a week, and he's uh-huh. probably already got a couple of them uh-huh. that he's working on. <laughs> well, there are other writers. None worth passings. So, <laughs> uh-huh. well, what if there were an unbalanced schedule and you get to play the Diamondbacks every day? Um, well, don't you think a lot of the attention would be on the Diamondbacks in that scenario? Like, I, I feel like that would almost uh, obscure what you were doing because people would just focus more and more on the Diamondbacks. But the Diamondbacks would still be unable to resist re- retaliating. Oh, so, so you're you're now you're talking about the value of it and not yes. the uh, the notice of it. Okay, yeah. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if the Diamondbacks would be able to resist. <laughs> Has anybody looked at the Diamondbacks? Have the Diamondbacks been retaliating in particularly self defeating ways? I am just thinking of the one notable example from about two weeks ago when uh, it was 
Kyle Loesch hit Chris Owings in the helmet, and then uh, the Diamondbacks pitcher, I think it was Evan Marshall, threw at Ryan Braun, and it was like in a really, really tight situation. Let me see, it was uh, it was a four three game in the seventh with runners on second and third and one out, and um, and he hit Braun, and then Luke Roy hit a grand slam that gave the Brewers a seven four lead. Yeah, but they might have intentionally walked Braun in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Uh, it'd be interesting. You will. I trust that you will write this almost immediately after we hang up, now that I've <laughs> mentioned this, but uh, it would be interesting to look at the win probability uh, added of all the Diamondbacks, um, uh, I don't know, vigilante justice over the mm-hmm. last couple of years. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how many examples I could come up with. But, yeah, that would that'd be fun. Uh-huh. Okay. Um <clears throat> All right, this one comes from Mike uh, tonight, and this was June 26th. The Cubs, who admittedly do not have a logical leadoff hitter, batted Ryan Sweeney first against Doug Fister. Sweeney is hitting 200 slash 247 slash 244 this season, but the but, Cubs. But <laughs> yes, one of one of one of Ben Lindbergh's favorite players ever, though. <laughs> yeah, I like Sweeney. He's yeah. why do I like Sweeney? Because he's because big and he's, he has no power. Exactly. He is yeah. the all-time uh, big, big guy, no power uh, ratio. Yes. Right? Uh, yes, that's right. But the Cubs were facing Doug Fister. Sweeney is hitting 400, 538, 600 against Fister in his career. My question is, which is more ridiculous, putting stock in a below-average hitter who has been great against a particular pitcher over a number of years, or putting stock in a below-average pitcher who has done well against a particular team in his career? Obviously, against different players over a number of years. If I'm sorry, I, I, I might not have listened to this closely enough, but uh-huh. uh, the uh, ag- the against a team stat mm-hmm. is uh, I, I I I once tweeted this, but uh, the amount of uh, the amount of scolding that we give teams for paying too clo- too much attention to the um, to the against a pitcher statistics mm-hmm. uh, should be multiplied by ten thousand if they ever sincerely do the against a team statistics. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, the against a team statistics uh, are the greatest example, I would say, in in the entire sport of uh, random numbers being compiled to form a narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could there is the occasional case where I might buy the Kyle Farnsworth. Um, uh, uh, revenge scenario. <laughs> uh, you, when I was growing up, for instance, there was a Kevin Mitchell San Diego revenge uh, hypothesis that mm-hmm. was pretty well accepted. Um, and there's the occasional scenario where I might accept the ballpark suits a player, or even I might accept, for instance, Will Clark used to do great in the Astrodome, his dad would be in the crowd. Fine, I'll give you one of those every ten years or so. Uh, but otherwise, there's there's nothing about a team that is uh, unifying. And so, what if there's a team that's uh, really good at advanced scouting and somehow picked up on this guy's tell or or something? He's tipping his pitches, or they they're better than every other team at assessing what what pitch and what location would get him out. This guy specifically. So it's not that they're better at advanced scouting. They are just better at advanced scouting this one person. Yes. <laughs> they had, yeah, they had a scout who, who for some reason picked up on this guy's kryptonite. Yeah, that's and fine. I'm not, no one else I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not mocking the premise. I just wanted to make mm-hmm. sure I'm understanding you correctly. Because if they were just better at advanced scouting overall, mm-hmm. we would not notice the anomalies. They would just be the best team. Right. Um, so uh, if they were, uh, that wouldn't. Uh, the, the the thing is that um, there are nobody stays with a team for very long anymore, mm-hmm. and whatever whatever book is on a player gets quickly spread around the league. Um, guys change teams all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, coaches change teams. Scouts change teams. Everybody's changing teams. So for the sort of uh, numbers that you would even start paying attention to, we'd be talking about probably four, five, six seasons minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and by that point, the the information would be well dispersed throughout the league. Okay, so that's Mike's answer. Not only is the versus team split worse, it is ten thousand times worse. 
approximately ten thousand times worse than a stat that I mean, than a stat that is already game. usually meaningless, if not we always. We also don't <laughs> like. Yeah, uh, I actually, um, I would, I, I would buy the the in a ballpark split before I would buy the in a team split, and I am uh-huh. not in the habit of buying the in a ballpark split. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, the in a ballpark split, at least, there is some intuitive sense to why it might matter but of course the problem is then you have half the sample when Mm -hmm. you're talking about this right okay let's do one more before play index this one comes from uh i'll say jonathan's question jonathan says part of the brewer's success this year has been having a rotation of two to three win guys average plus to use joshian's term eat innings and keep them basically in every game. It seems like many teams take more of a stars and scrubs approach with one or two terrific pitchers and a few back-end guys whom they hope will not fall off a cliff when it is their turn. None of the Brewers pitchers is great, but they also rank high in both quality starts and game score average, which day in, day out is something most ball clubs would seem to find very valuable, even if the skills basis for those accomplishments is debatable. I recognize that success in the postseason is another matter, but if you were constructing a rotation to get to the postseason and you had a choice to make, would you prefer a rotation whose talent is distributed fairly equally across the board or with the more common one and two than four and five sort of approach? I suspect you've considered a question like this before, probably in the abstract, but here we have what looks to be a successful example of a distributed approach. Would appreciate your thoughts. Uh, I, I'm I'm not going to answer this quite yet. I want to. I'm not going to answer this probably ever. I'm going to wait for you to answer it. But uh, two quick two quick things though in response. One is that uh, the success in the postseason being another matter is something that uh, we've talked about on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't seem to be another matter. While yeah. it seems like it should be, and we can't figure out why it wouldn't be. And this is one of our probably our first recurring themes in the in the effectively wild uh, history. It seems to me that in the first hundred or so episodes we talked about this a lot. Uh, and never did come to an, an, an agreement on why, but but success in the postseason being another man, matter doesn't seem to actually be the case. The other thing is, uh, in answering this, uh, the Brewers being a successful example of a distributed approach, well, not exactly. We've seen the Brewers' pitchers perform as though they are a evenly distributed uh, talent group, but that's how they've performed. Uh, that's not necessarily what their true talent is, and when you're talking about a, you know, you might have a stars and scrubs approach, but the scrubs slightly overperform and the stars underperform, and then you have what appears to be an evenly distributed uh, approach at the end of the year. But of course, that's not what it is. So you really have to think about a team that would have entered the season being identifiable uh, as this phenomenon, rather than looks like this phenomenon in July. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I, what's the answer, Ben? <laughs> I don't. I don't know if there really is a huge difference. I, I don't know. I'm thinking of the the article that Jonah Carey and Neil Payne did recently at 538, and that was for that was for a whole roster where they looked at whether it's better to to be stars and scrubs or to have talent evenly distributed throughout your roster, and they found that essentially it can work either way. There's no no clear edge to either approach. Maybe that also would apply to to the rotation as a as a microcosm of the roster i'm trying to i'm trying to think of you know maybe like is the is the stars and scrubs rotation more vulnerable is it more risky because it's not quite as balanced so if you if the if the star gets hurt then you're taking a bigger hit you have a a bigger gap to make up with your replacement player than than you would if you lose any of your evenly distributed starters. Is there anything to that idea? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, if you have a, if you have seven WAR uh, wrapped up in one spot on the roster, um, then that's potentially seven WAR that you could lose on one on one unlucky line drive or unlucky, uh, you know, play covering first base. But that seems to me that that I, I would intuitively I would suggest that that would be. Um, uh, the sort of roster construction that would be more likely to lead to a surprising last place finish. Um, mm-hmm. But um, once you get past second, nobody seems to care where you finish. 
Um, so I don't know that it matters so much for postseason. One thing that that I would that feels like it should be true, and I, I think I, I think I'm on pro pro team balance mm-hmm. um, in general, but uh, I don't exactly know why, and so I'm not going to defend it. But one reason that um, pro stars and scrubs um, seems like the better way is just that you have this entire infrastructure of, of baseball players who are available to you. Uh, to fill in the guys who, uh, for the guys who are failing. Like if your 25th guy sucks, it's not like you have to go to the 26th guy. You have 26 to 200 to choose from. And so you really only need, I mean, in theory, it, when, you're an, when you're building a team and you're optimistic, you really only need one of those 175 guys to take a big leap forward this year. And uh, so then you're replacing number 25 with, um, you know, the breakout, you know, whatever breakout minor league you have or whatever breakout quad A veteran you've signed or whatever, uh, you know, breakout starter turned reliever that you've got striking out 17 batters per nine in double A. Um, and when you have a balanced team, um, it, well, I mean, just think if you if you've got a guy who suddenly develops into a three win player um and you replace a you know a one win player like on on the balanced team you're only picking up two wins but if you replace a minus one win player on the stars and scrubs team uh, then that's a bigger upgrade right so that's mm-hmm. why it seems like the stars and scrubs is is so tempting and I think for like for fantasy purposes we we um, it, you know we've all done the stars and scrubs where you know you sort of feel like you have this team where. Um, the league is shallow enough that there's always good players on the waiver wire and you're smart enough to pick them up and to identify them in, in May. Um, the, the real premium is on the stars. and um, So that's uh, probably true in, in fantasy, but I don't know that this idea that you're going to have uh, more breakout players than you need, I guess it's probably an illusion in real life. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to think of the best examples of each of these approaches in the rotation in recent years. And I would, I would say the best example of a successful, evenly distributed rotation is probably the 2005 White Sox, uh, who I guess their, their best starter was probably Mark Burley that year, who was certainly not, not overpowering, not dominant. He was Mark Burley, but they had, they had three, Four different guys make 32 starts or more, and Burley and Garcia and John Garland and Jose Contreras all had three-something ERAs at a time when when having a three-something ERA for a starter meant something. And uh, and I guess their their worst guy was El Duque. So that was that was the I guess the classic example or that I think of as that kind of rotation. And then the the Stars and Scrubs rotation, I would go with the 2001 Diamondbacks, who, of course, had the the overpowering Randy Johnson, Kurt Schilling, 1-2, who also finished 1-2 in the the NL Cy Young voting that year. And then their third best starter that year was essentially no one. They really didn't, didn't really have a good third starter. They had... Brian Anderson made the third most starts. He made 22 starts with a 5.2 ERA. And then Robert Ellis made a se- made 17 starts with a 5.77 ERA. And then Albi Lopez made 13 starts with a 4.00 ERA. And that was, uh, I guess they also had Miguel Batista, who was going back and forth between the bullpen and the rotation. So that was kind of the classic example of the the unbalanced, top-heavy rotation. Of course, both of those teams won the World Series, so it can work either way. Okay, would you care to do the play index segment? Yeah, sure, and I'm going to do a first-ever in effectively wild history. I'm going to do a live play index. I will be (laughs) performing the play index while you wait. Uh, And we'll see how fast I can do this. Uh, so this was a, a question that was asked by Michael, um, who um, this is interesting. I hadn't noticed this this happening, uh, but it's an interesting thing to have observed. Michael writes: John Gibbons has used pitchers to pinch run a half dozen times or so this season. Some of this has been because Deonor Navarro and Adam Lind have been hurt and only available for pinch hitting duty while interleague has rolled around. 
Some of it's because Navarro and Lind are slow, even when they're healthy and playing in the American League. Not to mention that the Jays have rightfully carried three catchers for much of the year and not so rightfully eight relievers for other portions, sometimes at the same time, exclamation point. I guess my question is, what team in history has used the most pitchers as pinch runners? Which teams and players have had the most success, if that's even possible to measure in such a small sample? I don't intend to measure it. That is not the sort of thing that I would answer in a live play index. That sounds too difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I will try to answer the first one. So I'm going to go to the game finder in the play index tool. I'm going to search for teams with players matching uh, with player games matching criteria. So the teams in each uh, season uh, who have had the most players match the criteria. I'm going to ch- uncheck all pitchers. Uh, I, no, I won't. Uh, yes, I am. I'm going to uncheck all pitchers. Uh, Uh, batter's defensive positions. I'm going to then click only pinch runner. I'm going to then click the box recently added, a tremendous feature that Baseball Rinse has recently added, uh, for typically a pitcher, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a great thing to have. And uh, I believe believe now in the the pitcher play index, you can click a box that says typically a position player if you want to see how position players have pitched. Uh, And I'm going to go back to, what year should I go back to, 88? Sure. It's one of your magic years. You there? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to search for teams with the most of these happening in a year since 1988. And I'm in a place with really bad Wi-Fi. And yet that didn't take that long. So uh, the, uh, the record is, since 1988 is 17 times. Hmm. Uh, the 2011 Cincinnati Reds pinch ran with a pitcher 17 times. Do you know? Can you think? I know the answer. I know immediately the answer because I wrote about it. Uh, not this specifically, but, but do you know who the pitcher is who was doing all this? Which which year? Uh, 2011. Uh, was it? It was. Was it Owings? Uh, it was not. No. Hmm. I don't know. It was Mike Leak. Hmm. Okay. Uh, sorry, it uh, it was Mike Leake. That mm-hmm. that's true. The answer is Mike Leake. However, uh, I don't want to imply that it was only Mike Leake. Uh, in fact, even if you exclude Mike Leake from this, they would still be one of the highest ones. Uh, Leake pinch ran uh, nine times, uh, and so then they had eight uh, otherwise, and eight would be good enough for fourteenth since nineteen eighty eight, the fourteenth highest. Mm-hmm. Uh, the no- Number two team since 1988 is the Montreal Expos with 16, um, and they were that was the 1988 Expos. And then number five is the 1988 Braves. Uh, both of those teams, 1988 earliest season, which leads me to believe that if I went back further, I would see a trend um, downward. And so uh, I'm going to now expand the, the search while we wait. But uh, it does seem uh, almost inevitable that that we're going to find more pitchers pinch running in the past, right? Well, I mm-hmm. guess it does. Be on, on the, well, you know, on the one hand, you used to have a lot, you had more position players on your, on your active roster. And so the, um, the, the, I guess the value of a roster spot wasn't quite as high. And so you could, um, you would, you would have, you know, more guys on your bench capable of pinch running. So I guess that would be the argument for it not being more rare the argument for it being more rare is that pitchers have become, you know, kind of more specialized, more fragile. They've become much worse hitters, for instance, uh, since nineteen since the nineteen sixties. So mm-hmm. you have to imagine if they've become much worse hitters, they've probably also become worse pitcher, uh, uh, worse runners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they've become worse runners, uh, then teams would probably be more wary of letting them run. Uh, and potentially getting hurt, and of course they've gotten more expensive. I think the idea of pitcher um, scarcity has gone up since then. I, I get the feeling that pitchers are treated much more cautiously uh, now than they used to be. I don't remember, for instance, pitchers being told not to swing the bat uh, when they would bat in the 1980s, as occasionally a pitcher will be told not to even bother swinging for fear of getting hurt uh, mm-hmm. these days. Uh, anyway, so I look, and yes, indeed, the record since 1960 is 36, more than double the anything that showed up since 88. The 1963 Cleveland Indians, then there's 33 for 1960 Cardinals, 31 for 1966 White Sox. So yeah, it used to be pretty common. I mean, the, the Indians, so the Indians in 1963, every 
basically fourth game they would have a pitcher pinch running. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, pretty pretty doggone common. Um, and so I'm gonna look in a second and see who. who well, I don't even care. <laughs> I was gonna say we can look and see who it was that was pinch running, but. <laughs> Could you possibly care? Could you possibly care which 1963 Cleveland Indian pitcher was pinch running the most? Probably, Probably not. not. What if I told you his name was Mudcat Grant? Would you care a little bit more then? Yeah, sure. No, it's mildly interesting. <laughs> Mudcat Grant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess just to round this off, just to see who the modern uh, leader in this regard is, who the team that's, that does this the most, if there's a manager who likes this style of play, uh, I guess, I mean, the, the Reds were kind of a fluke. I, maybe they were kind of a fluke, but, I mean, Leak was such a good athlete mm-hmm. that uh, you have to think that was a big part of it. Leak, the reason I, I knew that Leak would be the guy is because I wrote about how Leak uh, added more value in non-pitching ways than anybody else in mm-hmm. any other pitcher in baseball that year. He was like two and a half wins more valuable than Matt Garza when you just strip away all the pitches he threw. Like, uh-huh. Garza was a more valuable pitcher, and Leak was like two and a half wins more valuable in every other aspect of the game. Um, so leaks sort of skewed that. I guess the Rockies show up a lot. The Rockies, the 2011 Rockies are seventh. The 2010 Rockies are third. The 2012 Rockies are second. So I guess this would have been a pre-Walt Weiss Rockies trend. I guess that would have been, I guess, the... Um, uh, oh, and the 2009 Rockies are are 17th. So I guess if you had to say, you'd say that this is Jim Tracy's jam. Like this is pretty much a Jim Tracy thing. And mm-hmm. so I guess we can now say that Jim Tracy is the, uh, the manager most likely to pinch run with a pitcher, uh, in the modern era. Uh-huh. Well, everyone was wondering. Mm-hmm. Do you just know imagine, if... yeah, just imagine if, if he had Mudcat Grant on this. <laughs> do you know if Leek has, I mean, obviously he has not continued to do that to the same same extent uh the 2000 the next high as uh, geez the, the 2013 reds which uh let's see this is this was the 2011 reds the 2012 and 2013 reds are nowhere to be found like thir- three times in 2012 and um two times this year and I guess probably one time in two, in 2013, if that, maybe none. Yeah, one time in 2013. So, yeah, so Leak has quit doing that. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, please. Interesting-ish. <laughs> yes. Like this, like that whole, that whole segment. Uh, <laughs> please <laughs> support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Go to BaseballReference.com and subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription, gain the ability to run interesting queries about players, pitchers pinch running. And, and so quickly, didn't I, <laughs> don't you feel like I demonstrated how simple and how quick it is? Yes, you did. We have already been disconnected once because of your internet connection, but Play Index was perfectly able to, to handle whatever, whatever weak connection you've got going there. 55 years of baseball history. <laughs> on a 56-bit modem. Is that a thing? Is that what you... 56-bit modem? Is that... 56K, right? K, 56K. Yeah, there you go. So it's the same same sort of thing. Yeah, same thing. Um, okay, well. Good. Thank you for doing that. Let's uh, wrap up with maybe one or two more here. Uh, Kyle... No, Kevin... No, Brett. <laughs> Brett asks... <laughs> Are the Astros the most interesting team that could have had a data leak? Which team would you be most interested in hearing about? And as Brett points out, probably most people's vote would be for whatever their favorite team happens to be. Whatever team they root for would automatically be the most interesting. But which team would be the most interesting to the the largest group of people? if, if if it's the same if it's the same data, we're just getting the same thing we got from the Astros, the the trade talk notes. Uh, I I don't know. I guess maybe I'd I'd like to see say I'd like to see the Cardinals trade talk say maybe from this this winter. You know when they had all of that 
all that depth and lots of good players and people were talking about whether they might deal from that depth and they ended up not doing that. I'd like to like to see whether they got close on anything, what sort of offers they entertained for some of their young players. Um, trying to think if there's any other team that well, might... The Rays would be interesting just because we don't ever get anything out of the Rays front office. And yeah. you do wonder what sort of mad geniuses kind of are, what kind of mad genius is coming out of that front office or whether it's not, whether it's just the illusion of it because we don't hear anything. Um, but the Rays would be interesting just for the insight. The Dodgers would probably be interesting for, uh, for activity. It would be the flip side of the Astros um, where, uh, you know, Probably they view they probably have a conversation about acquiring every player in the mm-hmm. game at mm-hmm. some point or another, and it'd be interesting to see uh, how they value each of those players and uh, what they sort of view as their find uh, their their greatest um, asset as a trade partner. If it's just uh, if every trade is just like uh, you know. John called, said they'd be willing to give us Dan Ugla. We could afford it, <laughs> you know. It's like that's the entire, like every single, it's just row after row of like uh, Ed Wade called, still has Carlos Lee hanging around. We could afford it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good, good choice. I'd like to see Dodgers. Okay, uh, let's take uh, this one from Kevin, who says with the. Ernesto Freire, uh, Jason Gurley trade this past week. I was thinking about the difference between NL and AL pitcher stats. I know that NL pitchers usually have better rate stats because they get to pitch to the opposing team's pitcher rather than a DH. But is it different for relief pitchers? By the time relief pitchers come in, the opposing starter has usually been or soon will be swapped out for a position player. Is the DH effect less pronounced for AL and NL relief pitchers than it is for starters? Also, I went with Ben and Sam with this email purely out of alphabetical order this time. So don't get too down on yourself, Sam. Um, So this one. All right. So I I looked up the as reliever and as starter splits at baseball reference just for for each league in 2014. So the average ERA for starters in the AL this year is 4.02. In the NL, it's 3.77. So NL starters ERA, the league ERA is about 94% of what it is in the American League this year. But for relievers, the AL average for relievers is 3.79. The NL average for relievers is 3.37, which is about 89% of the AL number. So actually, there is a bigger gap, at least percentage-wise, between... AL and NL relievers than there is between AL and NL starters. Does that surprise you? Um, yeah. What a finding. <laughs> yeah, that was up there with the, the record for pitchers pinch running. I don't. I wouldn't have had. I don't think I would have had a hypothesis on this issue. So I'm not sure mm-hmm. I would have necessarily uh, been surprised. But it surprises you though, clearly. A little bit, right? I mean, it seems like. That I mean, that's that's not the the whole reason why NL pitchers have lower ERAs. People have fairly convincingly shown that the actual talent level of of the well, uh, yeah, I don't know how much that plays into it because you'd think that the the pitchers are are better in the American League. Also, um, maybe maybe there's an imbalance between pitching talent and hitting talent in the leagues relative to each other. I don't know, but. But yeah, you would. So wait, so the hypo- the hypothesis was that uh, because the AL starters face DHs and AL relievers also face DHs, whereas NL starters don't face DHs and NL relievers, in a sense, do, uh, the gap should be bigger between NL and AL, uh, NL starters and NL relievers. That's the that's the hypothesis. Uh. I don't know if the the hypothesis as I understood it was that the the gap between the starters would be greater than the gap between the relievers because uh, if you're if you're a reliever in in say the NL you are not facing all that many pitchers because the pitcher has been pulled or or you know a pinch hitter comes in um, 
if for for late inning relievers. So you're you're not seeing uh, it, it. You wouldn't expect them to see the same percentage of pitchers, right? Because um, in the in yeah the late, right. It's, so so you would expect same, that yeah, there would same. be a same idea. Yeah, maybe expressed a different way. So so yeah, you would would you have expected there to be a bigger gap between the starter ERAs in the two leagues than the reliever ERAs? Uh, I, I just said I didn't have a hypothesis. <laughs> uh, uh, so how would the, do you think that NL relievers get the platoon advantage more or the platoon disadvantage more, I guess, uh, because there's more pinch hitting? Like just the fact that you have this one spot in the lineup that gets pinch hit for every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're um, they're more likely to have a pinch hitter brought in who is against their side of the plate, or mm-hmm. does that just lead to more pitching? Cha- uh, no, that wouldn't probably lead. To- so yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, so that that sounds possible. That that could it, it sounds plausible, but I'm not <laughs> sure that 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 might strengthen the the original mm-hmm. hypothesis. I'm not sure which way anything works right now. I'm I am completely upside down. I am I am. Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, in Inception, fighting <laughs> in a room without gravity. <laughs> okay, so maybe we should move on. Let me close with some thoughts from Matt Trueblood on the discussion about the Astros that we had yesterday. We we talked about how the Astros seem to be shooting for the moon in all of their trade talks, starting off the trade talks with a request for whoever the, the opposing team's best prospect was. And and we, we acknowledge that... Uh, that that might be what every team does and that there are reasons to do that. But elsewhere on the internet, certainly there was some, some mocking going on about that. So, so Matt points out, uh, it surprises me to see that so many people were surprised by the way the Astros trade talks unfold. I think most front offices probably make it a point to begin negotiations with the preposterous feeler proposals we saw on Monday for several reasons. One, anchoring bias. Uh, we've discussed that in different contexts on the show. Most most GMs are smart enough to work around it, but any cognitive bias you can put to work for you is worthwhile. Get a guy digging in his heels on prospect one, and maybe he'll be relieved just to hear prospect two's name cross your lips. Two, as Sam notes, the bulk of the variance in prospect evaluation is among non-elite guys. Therefore, why tip your hand if you're really hot on Josh Hader or Kyle Smith or whomever? Smart thing is to get a trade partner on the hook. Hope they propose realistic names first and redirect to your guy at the last second. If they don't know who you're really after, they can't hold your feet to the fire on him, and they can't go looking for whatever it is you think they've missed. Three, 1980s negotiation handbooks used to instruct you to avoid making an offer that drives the other guy away from the table. In 2014, though, and especially in baseball, that's not a major concern. If you make a silly demand for Lucas Harrell and get no response, you probably had a bargain shopper on your hands all along. You want to trade a guy to the team who likes him enough not to walk away over a bizarre opening offer. And finally, four, while the answers executives gave to these offers all boiled down to no, there was subtext. It's of some use to Houston to know that the Pirates aren't holding a hard line on any of their three best healthy pitching prospects, and to know that Clayton Blackburn is definitely a potential target the next time the Giants call. Subtext does matter. A hard no and a soft no have very different meanings. So those are some thoughts because as we as we speculated, it can be annoying when your trade partner automatically answers or automatically asks for the the best player you have. So those are some potential reasons why it might not be so silly. Yeah, I like those. I like the second one especially about not wanting to tip your hand about how you assess the other players. Uh, uh, I mean, basically, like what? It, there's that kind of uh there's that um idea that shows up in movies about how the whoever says the first thing in a negotiation loses and so you kind of just want to stall for as long as you can without saying anything of of import and uh by asking for lucas giolito you're basically saying you're sending the the ball back to them and making them say something first so i don't know Mm -hmm. sure i like that i like all those i especially like the second one Mm -hmm. all right thank you matt and final thought, I can I just say the uh, the Red Sox and the Angels made a very minor move that I I love this kind of move. This is like my favorite kind of move. I think the the Red Sox traded Rich Hill to the Angels in exchange for cash, just cash. And Rich Hill has been pitching in Pawtucket, Triple A. 
the Red Sox affiliate all year. He has not been up to the majors. He was pitching pretty well. He pitched like 39 innings and with a low threes ERA and over 10 strikeouts per nine and and uh, and was good against lefties. Uh, he you know, struck out 30% of lefties and held them to a, a 196 average with no extra base hits, but he could not get a call up to the Red Sox because the Red Sox have three lefties in their bullpen. They have Andrew Miller, who's just been dominant this year. They have Craig Breslow, who has not, though he has been good in the past. And now they have Felix Dubrant uh, in the pen for now also. So he could not get a shot there. And the Angels, by contrast, had no left-handed relievers at all. Uh, all righty bullpen. And so this is a just a, it's a minor move, but it's a, it's a clear example of sort of a a redistribution of resources in a way that that just kind of makes the the whole game more efficient, right? Rich Hill, potentially useful commodity, just languishing in AAA. Another team needs him more than the Red Sox do, and and he got moved to the team that needs him more. It's kind of nice because we always we always talk about the replacement player and how you should be able to go get someone at whatever position, just go get the the best available guy in the minor leagues to fill whatever whatever terrible position you have. And it's not always that easy to go get someone. Um, but this is a this is a good example of how you can just kinda fill a hole by finding a team that has something that would potentially be useful to you, but was not really potentially useful to that team. So I'm I'm really glad that today was a Wednesday and that you didn't have to bring a topic because I'm afraid <laughs> that would have been your topic and we would have had 25 minutes. On. Yeah, I'm not sure how how long I could have gone on Rich Hill. Although I will say that Rich Hill's 2013 season is one of my favorite seasons because um, I I love players who have an ability to stay on a roster despite never playing. For whatever reason, maybe they're a, a loogie who barely faces any opposing batters, or maybe they're a utility guy or a third-string catcher who just who just never really gets a start, never really faces anyone, but somehow manages to stay on the roster the whole year. I did an article on this recently for Fox Sports, and Hill is one of my favorite examples of this because he was on the Indians last year from opening day till the end of the season without any interruption. Despite pitching fewer than 40 innings and having a 6.28 ERA uh, and having a having like an 8.2 ERA into June, which you would you'd think peripherals aside would have gotten him demoted at some point, but it never did. Uh, he did strike out a lot of guys. He also walked a lot of guys and somehow he he clung to life in the majors for that entire year. So that's all I have to say about Rich Hill. And that's all we have to say today. So uh, thanks for listening.